Well, hello. It's me, Alex Steed, one of the co-hosts of Wire Dads. I want to thank you so much for uh, checking out this bonus episode. We didn't really intend to put this out uh, as a primary episode, but then we took this week off. So we figured, you know, if you want to hear some Wire Dads action while we're not around, <laughs> while we're taking a break, there's this for you. Uh, this is a conversation we had about the movie Room 237, which was obviously inspired by our conversation about The Shining, page to screen, a handful of weeks back. In and we do these bonus episodes on Patreon. We posted this yesterday on Patreon. We do them a couple of times a month, sometimes more than that. They're meant to be showcases of conversations that don't otherwise fit into the traditional show format. Sometimes we talk about stuff like this. Sometimes we talk about what just made us happy in the week. Sometimes we talk about death. <laughs> so it's a range of stuff. This episode, uh, as all of our episodes are, was produced by Carolyn Kendrick. So thank you so much to Carolyn. Uh, and you can find more episodes like this at patreon.com slash whyourdads. Now, hopefully you will join us for our proper episode this week, which is about Blue Valentine, which we covered with our friend Esme Wang. But until then, let's talk about some Shining-inspired and Kubrickian conspiracy theories in the context of Room 237. Sarah, who is this man? <laughs> this man is Patrick McGinty, who is one of my favorite writers, academics. He's a school teacher. It's been mostly a way of making ends meet. Creepy smile. Just kidding. <laughs> it's a quote from The Shining. That's a Jack Torrance original. <laughs> Hi, Patrick. Thank you for coming to be with us today. Always happy to be compared to Jack Torrance. <laughs> <laughs> Patrick, uh, or sorry, <laughs> Jimmy Stewart, who is speaking to us through Patrick. Can you tell us a little bit about the film that we're going to be discussing today? Well, uh, it was a movie called The Shining. Shining, uh, you know, shining. Uh, look up there at the moon. Look up there at the moon. The shining, just, it's just shining up there just for you and me, Mary. I'm going to rope it down and bring that big shiny moon right down here. Well, that sounds like a nice movie. <laughs> That is not what I expected. <laughs> no, nor I. Okay, you can continue as yourself if you like, whatever you want to do. Room 237. Um, I mean, we're just doing a description of the movie first, right? I know the Wire Dads uh, format. Mm -hmm. This is a movie that starts very innocently. Just kind of, it starts with literally just a guy talking about the first time he saw The Shining. And then someone else starts talking about the first time... They saw The Shining, and you're seeing all this different cross-cut imagery and sound, and you're sort of like, huh, I guess I'm just hearing a story about, about people's experiences with The Shining. And it starts picking up steam and just becomes a locomotive of people explaining to you their theories, their, their history with this movie, and has become... Some, for, for all the ways in which The Shining is a sort of cult classic, this is like a cult of a mm. cult classic. And it, it sort of takes you through specifically five people's somewhat distinct theories, although there's some offshoots, of what they think the movie The Shining is about. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the, I don't know, is there, is there something I'm missing there in the broad strokes? Yeah, so Alex and I talked about The Shining. We did an episode called The Shining Page to Screen, or that's what we've been calling it, which was really fun. And then this was finally the time when I kind of did a 180 on The Shining, and I watched it, and I was like, I like this movie. 
actually, which is exactly the journey the people in this movie describe having. They're like, I didn't like it at first, but then I decided that it had a secret message just for me. <laughs> and then I did like it. And this movie is like this interesting part of all of our lives, except for Alex's to this point, because Alex, you just watched this for the first time ever. But yes. Patrick, you are the husband of our frequent guest, Candace Opper. And so you are here partly because you have been teaching Room 237 for many years. And it's a movie that I, I remember when it came out. I remember Candace and I seeing it at the Living Room Theater downtown, where we also saw many great films, including Mama, <laughs> and and just really loving it. And I feel like when we all saw it together, or Candace and I saw it together, and then it became a part of your life, I feel like it entered our lives as this expression of, like, sometimes you're obsessed with something for your entire life, and it's kind of nice. It's really weird, but it's nice. And now we have entered a world where conspiracy theories, which are a part of this film, have become a much bigger and stronger part of our everyday political life. And like, maybe this movie has some new implications. It definitely does. I, and I, I want to hear Alex's take two on seeing it fresh. I mean, I saw this movie, I saw Room 237 for the first time the way I saw every single movie between 2011 and 2015 for the first time, which is I biked home in the rain in Portland, Oregon. I put my bike in the car because we didn't have room to store it in our apartment. I came inside and you and Candace were already watching a movie that was halfway over and I sat down <laughs> and started watching it. And it, I think it had... I forgot about that. So that means we saw it in the theater and then we liked it so much. We were like, let's watch it again relatively soon after it came it, out. It was on Netflix back then. I remember watching like part oh, of yeah. it. Like, okay, it's a pretty easy movie to jump into. And then when I started teaching at my current university, I had classes for the fall. I taught a course called Critical Writing and then... As happens with teaching, I got a critical reading course like super late, like a couple days before the term started. And I texted my, my, my colleague, Tim Oldakowski, a great human. And I was like, what the hell is critical reading? Like, what am I supposed to do in here? And he was like, actually, I, I started off teaching the uh, Room 237. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Just like how to read a text, <laughs> kind of like how it can go wrong, kind of like how it can be fun. And I was like, oh, yeah, like, I love that. Uh, I can do that. I mean, one of my... I'm like a super, I'm just a very reckless educator. I don't, I can read like half of something and be like, I'm teaching this. Like, I love this. This is great. Like, I don't need to have mm -hmm. like a whole lot of preconceived notions or plans. Like, I like doing it alongside the students. It comes with being that kind of student in the past, I think. I feel yeah. like I'm like that too, where I'm like, if we have a few nuggets that I can go in talking about, then, like, they'll find the other stuff. And, like, I'm not the boss of this class. That's your entire philosophy, period. Yes. I, as I see, as I see take shape every day. It's the philosophy of an adjunct, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have these nuggets. I've been inspired by these nuggets, and you, too, can be inspired by these yeah. nuggets. Yeah. Like, I'm not going to read a whole text for you. Do it yourself. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm not in, like, the top one percentile of people who've seen Room 237. Like, I feel like the people in Room 237 and other people have probably seen this more. But I have watched it via screening it for classes, like, four to eight times a year for the past six years. That is a lot. Because I've seen it, like, eight times, and I think of that as a lot. But that's not really a lot. <laughs> yeah, and what's, what's interesting is back in 2015 when I started teaching it for the first time... 
And I teach at a rural university with a lot of first-generation students, many of whom are like, this is, for people who haven't seen it, there are just some theories that we can get into that, like, you're kind of like, okay, maybe The Shining is about the Native American genocide. Maybe it is about maybe faking the moon landing. There's also, like, a sex demon theory we can talk about. But a lot of students... I love the sex demon theory. Oh, yeah. You can't have a theory without sex demons, yeah. Yes, I just had a student this term write a whole paper about PTB, which is the paper tray boner guy, and he called his paper some pun on mm. PTB. PTB, I love that. Yeah, students were like really skeptical. Some of them were like, is this what college is? Just kind of like making up theories and seeing stuff. And this one terrific <laughs> student was just like... And this is back in 2015, was just like, no, this is, like, amazing. Like, meaning shouldn't just be handed down to us from on high. It shouldn't just be, like, you know, Jesus was a white guy with blue eyes and whatever, and that's where we're supposed to believe, and, like, you have to, like, actively make meaning, and you have mm. to examine, and, and et cetera, et cetera. And she gave this beautiful sort of oration, I remember, in class. And mm. I was like, yes, this is great. This is why you teach this. Contrast that, as you were sort of already indicating, which with having taught it a few weeks ago, like weeks after the insurrection, which I don't, we need a better term than that. That sounds like something too cool that people mm. want to do again. I know, because insurrection suggests they had ideas, or it's like the tennis court thing in the French Revolution where, like, there's some kind of coherency. Where Yeah, and, like, I don't know, riot seems fine. Something more embarrassing would be nice. The violent tantrum. Yeah, tantrum. The tantrum. Yeah. I yeah. like that. Yeah, I like that a lot more. But, but teaching it after that, students very astutely were like, this is kind of like a frightening way to navigate the world. Or they're just pulling out evidence the same way that mm. QAnon is saying, oh, look, there are 17 American flags behind Trump. And, and that means whatever mm. it means. And they're, they, they were bringing in, and they have the past couple of years. Oh, this It means is... go to John 317. Yeah. And the third word of that is Oasis. And there's a bar called the Oasis in Calorama. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. The other day on Twitter, Jason Reed, who is my, one of my postmodernism philosophy professors when I was in school, tweeted something along the lines of, within this stance in which postmodern thought was the reigning, sort of the reigning lens of analysis, there was a traceable origin to everything, right? Like there was, hmm. there was the origin and then there was the reference, the reference, the reference. And kind of like at the point that we're at now in like this like post-postmodern reality, <laughs> you know, postmodernism, which is what we're seeing here. And actually someone gives a shout out to postmodern uh, uh, film theory at the end of the movie hmm. seems both quaint and embarrassing. These people are making references. They're drawing their own inferences. There's actually places where you can see the points of origin. And it seems it's wild to say that like postmodern theory and postmodern reads seem old fashioned, but it kind of seems old fashioned. And also exactly like you both are saying, it's like we're living in this like hyper version of it that is terrifying. Yeah. And I mean, one of the things that I thought about watching this most recently because really, like, we were watching The Shining, and then I watched this, and I was like, we got to talk about this movie, man, because like, I love it so much, and there's so much going on here. But, like, one of the reactions I had was that w one of the guys in here, I think his name is Jay Widener, he's like, I'm not saying we didn't go to the moon. I'm saying we faked the footage, and Stanley Kubrick faked it. And I was like, you know... That's pretty grounded. Like, and, like, maybe he says some wilder stuff. He probably does elsewhere. This is a relatively short film. But, but like, just when I think about, like, the QAnon theories, because, like, the one I can't get past is that, like, 
you know, the Democrat Illuminati of which, you know, Tom Hanks is one, for example, are like they torture children and they kill them and they skin them and they make shoes out of their skin and their skin has turned red because of the adrenochrome harvesting. And then they make the shoes and they wear the shoes. And then when you see someone on the red carpet <laughs> with red shoes, you're like, see? And it's like, that doesn't even look like the same material. Like, if it looked like leather, we could be maybe having a conversation. But it's like, I just like how the, like, is the theory of, like, Stanley Kubrick faked the moon landing footage. I'm like, yeah. Like, I don't think that happened for a second. But, like, is it physically possible all the way down? Yes. <laughs> like, that's just, you don't get a lot of that anymore, I feel like. What I loved about this movie, which again is just f essentially like reverse engineered fan theories that come from watching The Shining and through like advanced reads, I would say, and like really spectacular mm -hmm. obsession, like really spectacular personal obsession. Spectacular obsession. Yeah. What I love about the movie itself is it doesn't <laughs> like you could easily ask a question or two about these people's background and probably you know learn some real fascinating shit from where these these uh, uh theories derive some more than others probably and we hear that a little bit but i love that this movie does nothing to explain where these yeah. things came from or who these people are or how like right. accredited they are yes exactly yeah. and it makes part of it like actually a little bit you know, is, is absurd. I was like rolling my eyes in so many parts of the movie. I was like angry at some of the parts of the movie, but also at the same time, like I loved that I could see myself in parts of this movie. <laughs> like mm. I have ridiculous out of nowhere based certainly in parts in reality obsessions that don't probably hold a ton of water, maybe hold a little bit of water and kind of came out of nowhere and possessed me a little bit. Like I think we all do to some extent. I hope we do. Yeah. I think, Standing in judgment of these people, I, like, discourage students and myself from doing it. Because, like, look, the reality is, is if I had a video footage of me on, like, election night finding random people who were like, oh, this, yeah. this, person's, <laughs> this person says uh, Missouri is whatever, says Georgia, and, like, they're not checkmarked, but that's because they're so busy in the numbers, they don't yeah. have time for checkmark. And, like, you're stringing together sure. all this stuff. That I don't, I, I, I don't want to stand in judgment of these people. And I also, I, I agree that just like most wonderful, I don't know, I just kind of believe at my core that most of the wonderful things in the world come from spectacular obsession, to use your um, mm. phrasing. I love that. Um, I'm also just, you know, I think it's such mm. a large-hearted move. And, and some students have pushed mm. back on me on this in good ways. But I think it's such a large-hearted move not to show these people on screen and to treat their arguments mm, and evidence mm -hmm. as like as just worthy of interaction like i think rather than it'd be very easy to show them in their study with all their crazy stuff and you sort of stand in judgment of them immediately like i just i, I find that such a such a large yeah. move on asher the the director's part and i just think of different things throughout my life where i've been really inspired by people who in gauge fully in that way i remember going to a reading in portland that rachel kushner the novelist she was when the flamethrowers came out it was like on the day that the boston marathon bombing happened mm -hmm. and 
and somebody kind of asked like a very long meandering question and it, it was just kind of one of those questions that are reading where you're like oh boy this is really putting the person in a spot and this is more a comment than a question <laughs> well totally and something something might have even been going you know it's kind of hard to, but she I just remember the way she looked at him she didn't look to the side like being like this guy or whatever like she just fully mm. deeply engaged and I remember like really really admiring that now the flip side what some of my students are like they're like they're like bro you can't engage with all this bullshit out there like this is crazy you can't be large hearted and like just... <laughs> it's like listen your heart had less crazy blood to pump through it in 2013 <laughs> yes and so so at my core i believe in like trying to engage with with these these sorts of obsessions and stuff other people but i i don't know i i'm having to revisit that type of stance so but I, I do do agree that like I love mm. the people and and their sort of their ability to actually express all their thoughts. Mm. I mean that's why I brought up the like quaintness of of initial postmodernism is that like now everything is kind of a reference of a reference of a reference of a reference like to the point where it's hard to trace back and it's it's sort of nice sitting with something where it's just like there's original work A and then there's all these other things surrounding it and it it feels it feels lovely and quaint and I also I I feel the same way about not holding people in judgment because I like that I disagreed so ardently with a lot of what people were saying. And I think it's important to remember how relatable this stuff is, or like these kinds of obsessions are. I think it's, we do a disservice in particular with like talking about, about QAnon. We do a disservice by talking about this, like people falling into weird, harmful belief patterns where they like suddenly believe this thing that seems so outlandish, but have a community in doing so is crazy. But we don't ask like, why is that a possibility? <laughs> you know, like right. what about us makes that possible? What about we live in a society as the Joker canonically observed? It turns out we do. <laughs> <laughs> So let's let's actually do a rundown of the theories in this film, which Patrick, I feel like, well, no, Alex, I want to hear you do it because you have spent the least time with this and therefore are going to have the most trouble and be the funniest. It'll be much funnier if he does it. Yeah. And have the hardest time telling these guys apart. Oh, we'll talk about that. I'll do my best. Right. Where it's like um, one is. It's there are a lot of visual clues in The Shining that um, speak to the United States role in the Native American genocide. That's one. Ding ding. Mm -hmm. Two, the architectural structure of the hotel doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Mm -hmm. This one I find the most persuasive because it's not really a theory. No, it's just, it's true, yeah, this exactly. Is, it's just like, the the architecture is weird, right? And you're like, yeah, it is. Thanks for pointing that out. Three is is the sex demon one, which I like a whole lot, or like mm -hmm. the sort of like sex possession sex possession piece. Oh, there's the, um, the cover-up of the moon landing uh, that Stanley Kubrick... Those are the same guy. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, uh. no. Uh. Uh -huh. <laughs> oh, I'm laughing like a sex demon over here. Is he the same one who talks about how in the different layers of the hotel or the different layers of the like the parental consciousness? No, that's a different guy. 
<laughs> oh my god okay and then and then i think there's someone who draws a parallel to nazi stuff but i don't know if that's mm-hmm. one of these same people that is a different guy yeah and then there's the guy who's the guy who has the young son oh the guy who's like un- unemployed and obsessed and he's kind of the conclusion of the movie yeah and he i didn't really appreciate this line before but he's talking about how like you start to see your life resembling the shining and he's like things get strange (laughs) (laughs) he has a laugh like patrick i feel like you could confirm this this is like the laugh of like portland men (laughs) yeah he's he's uh he's going through some stuff i think he's you know he's been at home with his Mm. son a while aren't Uh, we all it it is funny that you're talking about I, i did I wrote down like the alarming similarity of the men. Like just the, the the men in this are so except that guy, except the 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 one dad, but like the men there is something about mm-hmm. men just like theorizing. And I mean I even see it with like just little boys running up and down the street, just the intensity of you be this, you be that. No, then this connects to this. <laughs> this this sort of like relentless gamifying of stuff versus like you know versus mm. Julie Kearns in this who's such a welcome presence just her her tone her approach her, mm. her style like I think this doc doesn't work without Julie in it I honestly think that like she she's no yeah because as, as Alex is laughing saying wait that's the same guy what are you talking about? like they, they blend together so easily that their style their ping pong yeah. kind of like connect this to this there is something about like the way they make their arguments yes. just their tones just the, yeah. the connecting this and obviously this and obviously like you know like one of the lines I always laugh at is right it's like they want to be jokey but also let you know how serious they are I always laugh right after paper tray boner when the guy's like it's a joke but it's a very serious joke and I just always, <laughs> I, just always I just always laugh at that I love that guy because he's I think the only one who's on a first name basis with Stanley I and I also feel like we all want to be on a first name basis with a dead genius who's leaving special messages for only us you know <laughs> I mean since this is why our dads they are all kind of like siblings being like no dad liked this the best no like no dad had this yeah, big collection exactly of whatever right. I mean, they, whereas most people spend their life many people spend their life sort of in therapy reliving and replaying a parent's actions or meaning or different things I mean they, Stanley is kind of like the father figure for some reason I was thinking of Knives Out which I think I only saw like 75% of as Candace was watching like an old Christopher Plummer is like old and dies and they're trying to figure out what he wanted to do with his will it Mm -hmm. is like all this it is these these people are sort of like a family gathering trying to divvy up Stanley's like artistic intent and like kind of uh, get to the bottom of it that that I did because I was knew I was doing this podcast I was like ah these are all kind of like a just a strange kind of family you know trying to figure out dad and Julie is like Ana de Armas (laughs) yes yes (laughs) first of all like I cannot overestimate how important it is that you like know for sure who's talking at any times when Julie Kearns is talking about something, which is an unfair advantage that I also have in podcasts, which is like I have two shows and everyone knows when I'm the one who's talking. <laughs> um, it's great. A lot of people struggle with that. And I find her such a welcome presence, Patrick, to use your term. She isn't making a hard sell for anything. She's like, here is the story of me and this movie. And she's the one who made the maps of the overlook that they do use throughout the film which are very helpful one of her big things which and i also just love this phrase is the impossible window the impossible window in Ullman's office which i also love because having just read the book again like i think Ullman is such an interesting and telling change from king where like 
The first words of the book are Jack thinking a vicious little prick to himself, and he's thinking them about Ullman, who does not seem to like him. And in this, and in the movie, it's so weird. Like I am, I I lean toward buying these theories partly because I'm like Stanley Kubrick knew how to film people having a convincing conversation, and like this was not it. So like, why is this happening? <laughs> but Alex, can you talk about the impossible window? Yeah, so basically, if you go into Ullman's office in the way that you walk into this building, which is essentially a very, 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 very long rectangle with a square in the center, you would, in theory, be right in the middle of the center square and or somewhere around the middle of the center square where this uh, office is, though there is a uh, plate glass window that looks outside right there where the office mm-hmm. is, which is impossible. It's an impossible window. And so, I mean, that's, <laughs> that's how I felt about so many things that it's like, I, you know, I get it. I totally get it because like Stanley Kubrick's a genius, right? Like, right. And he seems to care about spatial stuff. Like he right. certainly doesn't care about his actors suffering. So like, what's he doing with that time? Right. And he's not like, <laughs> you know, I work in commercial video and we don't give a shit at all. Like we do, we do totally by way of quality, <laughs> but like you never think in a commercial video that someone's going to reverse engineer the placement of a window. But you're aware of more than you think, I suspect, because like, I bet you, you know, without thinking about it, like not to do a certain shot combination or whatever that yeah. would like feel hinky to someone in a way they couldn't describe. Totally. I can under, this is where I'm saying where I understand the Kubrick impulse. Cause often like in, in commercial video, like you have X amount of money. If you need to shoot in a place that has that window in it and it doesn't make sense architecturally, you just have to do it. Cause the mm. client committed to spending X amount of money. I see what you're but, saying. But Stanley Kubrick, yeah. it's not a money choice. That choice is certainly an, right. a, the choice is certainly an aesthetic choice. And the place where I was the most. Heaven knows it's not a money choice. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And the place where I was most sold on this, the one piece in this where I got some real meaning. And so I would say I would say a lot of this space stuff is compelling. I don't think the answer which is that the moon landing was staged and Stanley Kubrick shot it, even though they're saying that's not what happened. They are saying that's what they're saying. I would say that that that's probably not the solution. So the moon, the, the space stuff had some some interesting stuff in there. But the one thing that stood out to me the most was Dick driving down the highway and then seeing the Mack truck uh, crushing yeah. the symbolic Stephen King Volkswagen car. Because <laughs> it's like as it's as the, the Volkswagen is described in The Shining in the book and and the idea is that it's a fuck you to Stephen King. I like that. You buy that one. Because <laughs> Kubrick's a prick. And I guarantee in my prickier moments, I do some shit like that. <laughs> one might call him an officious little prick. And maybe Stephen King's calling him or bothering him. And he's like, you know what, Stephen? Like, this is what I'm going to do to your fucking book. <laughs> Sarah, what's your favorite evidence or theory? Oh, boy. Okay, well, something I will say that this go-round, because I did watch The Shining a few times to prepare for the episode we just did, a theory that is, like, mentioned actually very briefly is that there's the implication that maybe Danny is being sexually abused. Yes. Which the only thing they talk about in the movie that hints toward that is that Jack's reading a copy of Playgirl that mentions incest, and it's also, like, a weird thing to be reading at his first day of work in the lobby of the hotel. And I found that interesting to think about going through this movie and something that that connects to, which I 
also find interesting is like Wendy's reaction to the bear scene, the guy in the bear costume scene, which was a dog costume in the book. And it's a bear costume in the movie. And like the implication of sexual abuse. And also the fact that Danny is like the scene where the child where the pediatrician or the child psychologist comes to see him has got like a bear right next to him the way his head is framed and he's like lying in bed like he's at a gynecologist a little bit and I found a website that was also like putting some of this together when I like looked up this theory because obviously tons of people are talking about this and it brought up a bunch of evidence of, of this sort and then I think there's like a toy poo bear in the apartment there's like some art that maybe has a bear in it that I noticed like there's just there's something interesting there and that was something where I was like oh I'm like having my personal experience of how it feels to be one of these theorists watching this movie where like the movie gets to be like this easter egg hunt and that is what makes it dynamic because like I'm supplying some of the charge because like I you know I do think this movie is great but like it I th- I feel like it is intentionally wooden in the first hour in a way that is hard to get with. Yeah. Um, so that was something that like, let me have the, the full experience this time. Yeah. You know, one other thing I noticed when I was rewatching it is they, when they talk about their experience of watching the shining, like it's impossible to divorce their, I think Alex used the word sort of hyperdrive analysis from like advancing technologies you know, they, they like, all talk about seeing it in the movie theater and, like, boy, that was mm. weird. And, like, then I went about my life. And then, you know, Julie talks about, like, when I came out on VHS. And, like, Blakemore talks yeah. about, like, they talk yes. about renting it and getting it. And, like, this is kind of that era, you know, The Shining's out in the 80s and, like, technology in the 80s and 90s does just start allowing this pause, rewind, rent, watch over and over again. Mm. That, that there is something really interesting about this being the movie that this has happened for, not just because it's Kubrick and there's all this stuff in it, but it also is, like, the right time for this to happen, where, where mm. technology is, like, enabling this. And and I almost feel like maybe I'm just reading, like, too many sort of COVID different things, numbers and different stuff, but I feel like online there's just all these chart bros who are just kind of like, <laughs> give me the data and, like, I'll tell you how to solve this thing. Like, just more data every single day. Like, of like there's sort of this... Like, data visualization is going to save us. Yeah, just, like, this kind of technocratic impulse of, like, a of like a Nate Silver, like, his JV sort of wannabes or a, you know, Buddha judge or diff- different sort of people who are, like, if you give me all the information in a spreadsheet as much as possible, I'll be able to find, like, the, the solution. Just give me all the information... Mm as possible where like interpretation is almost like an act of data entry now and it's like you're not consolidating my student loan debt pete <laughs> yeah well it's just like it's more interested in, i just was thinking about like tabulation versus interpretation where like this this movie is like hmm. people are making interpretations but they're also just assembling so much freaking evidence and so much of it is just kind of like the pointlessness of specificity like Blakemore the guy Blakemore is incredible at this he's so shifty when he talks about stuff mm-hmm. he says things like well I was I was <laughs> sitting in the back left seat of the car on the way home and you're just like that detail doesn't matter it doesn't matter it, do- it doesn't it doesn't matter to anything but he like he, he just tabulates and tabulates and like data points and like just sort of to paint this incredibly specific picture 
And like most of it doesn't like it doesn't matter where he sat in the car on the ride home. But I was really paying attention to like how hyper specific he is about everything mm. to create this portrait of, of understanding of having all the data. And I've got this like huge spreadsheet and I've mm. watched it frame by frame. And that like a lot of it's just kind of like not relevant, <laughs> you know, when he's really presenting his ideas, I think with this framing of like this is the message of the movie and i love how they start off with him and then i think the next person we hear from maybe it's Cooley kearns but like we pretty soon then hear from the guy jeffrey cox who's like it's about the holocaust and i remember the first time i saw it i was like oh well that first argument was convincing and now this seems like diametrically opposed in a way and to me it's like i do like i buy basically the idea that like stanley kubrick kubrick Kubrick, whatever. Stanley <laughs> <laughs> is making a movie that to some degree, like, I mean, The Shining is about a man who tries to kill his family. And on a larger scale, America is a country built by men who were okay with killing somebody's family or many families. And I do feel like that's represented in the story. And like, personally, I am willing to buy that Kubrick himself was like, yes, like I will give intentional clues to the idea that this is like a, and like I buy that like the pattern of the carpet looks like the rocket launch pad, you know, like I can, I accept like individual elements of all of these arguments, but I'm also like, I think he was just putting a lot of different things <laughs> into this movie. And I think that all of these people are right but they only become wrong if they insist on their story or their version of the story being the story, which is why Julie Kearns comes out looking the smartest because she's like, this part's weird. And you're like, it is weird. Thank <laughs> you for describing how it's weird, Julie. I knew it was weird at heart, but I couldn't say why. And now you've helped me say why. It's like watching people trying to make memes. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's like all of these people are trying to be like, there are these two elements and then bring them together and imbue them with all of my passion. And then it'll be a thing. And like Julie's not trying to make a meme. Mm. Julie's just like, this is wild. And you're like, yeah, that's that's absolutely true. It is wild. Like it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> but everyone else is kind of like put element A together, element B together. And then and then I am going to convince you via my emphatic reading that it is a meme. It should be a standalone thing. And now we just talk in like 40 memes a day. Like we just the, we and we know and mm. unpack the memes and what yes. they are. But it's, it's speaking to what Patrick said, like I feel like you just demystified this whole thing for me and realizing and remembering that time where it's like you know, for a lot of people, they hadn't seen The Shining. They hadn't seen any imagery from The Shining. They hadn't seen it in passing on TV. One day, they just saw The Shining for the first time. Can you imagine? I can't. <laughs> right. Like, like they didn't grow up with, like, references to it, and then The Shining happened. With the, with the Simpsons parody, which I saw many times first. Exactly. Yeah. And so they saw it for the first time, and they just had a whole new set of symbols and presentation that would sit in their brain and they could use to understand their life in one way. And like I'm reading Daniel Dennett's book on the um, evolutionary history of religion. And it's like, it is our tendency to take new symbols and rearrange them to understand old symbols. Like that is what we do and that is how we do and how we've done it forever. So that's kind of, that's magical. Like to watch 
these mm. people's process and how they got to where they got to. And it seems some of it to me seems a little silly, but it's also not unlike anything we do all day, every day in one way or another. It's just become hyper accelerated. Right. It's like, well, you were bothered by the fact that Bill Blakemore couldn't tell the difference between baking soda and baking powder. Didn't like that. For example. <laughs> <laughs> And to be fair, I went back and watched that scene and he and he refers to baking powder every time he's referring to baking powder, but then he calls it the baking soda plant. So I'm wondering if they're known for being baking mm. soda primarily. But what we see on screen mm. is but I yeah, I mean I was like, all right. Calumet baking powder. I don't know. I don't know of, of a any you know, it's not the hugest thing, but but if Julie made that mistake, you probably wouldn't care as much. Maybe that's the point. <laughs> no, no, because as, as Patrick's saying, like just the is he the one who speaks? Well, they all kind of speak with a particular kind of certainty. He's the Native American genocide guy. Yeah, he speaks with a level of certainty about this thing where I'm just like, all right, all right hold your horses, buddy. <laughs> Although someone who follows us on Twitter was like, yeah, everything and that's ridiculous aside from the Native American theme. Like I wrote my thesis on that. That's true. And that's great. I love that. And I, Yeah. And I'm like, it is true. It just might not be as, it's just that Bill Blakemore needs to be like only 95% as right as he thinks he is for me to sleep at night. I mean, some of it is just not, I mean, there's one, I have a whole routine where I teach. I know exactly when to pause it, when mm. I'm going to say my joke, what I'm going to do. Like I have a whole stand up bit yeah. about I it. Like that. there's definitely <laughs> one where when what's the the guy moon room guys the the, the tag on the door says yeah room, room number oh yeah <laughs> and he's like well the only two words you can spell are moon and room and i pause it and i'm like can anybody else spell a different word and we think about it and someone looks <laughs> like it's moron you can spell moron from those two those sorts of letters but he doesn't like he's just like you can only spell two words moon room and like there's just, <laughs> there's just lots of that stuff in there where it's like very easily or I mean, sub's not easily explained. I mean, where do you where do you all fall on like the intentionality of uh of, of Stanley? I, I agree, Sarah. One of my biggest concerns about doing this was was like, is it Kubrick or Kubrick? I've never really said it aloud that much, uh, but we'll say Stanley. Like, yeah. where do you fall on like the intentionality, whether it's about one theory or not? Like, because I think a lot of this boils down to. Like, how much do you believe in one person? Like, how much do you believe in, like, a movie set is a lot of people making lots of choices that are that's sort of the magic of movie making mm. and collaboration and whatnot versus there is this, like, godlike dictatorial sort of figure on set? Well, it's interesting because I feel like most of the time, like, most movies are, you know, involve a lot of compromise and most, you know, and, and a lot of TV, I mean, now there's more money and time going into it, but a lot of that was just like, you know, those are the props we could get that day, which is why you don't see a lot of dissertations written on Three's Company, although there are some. <laughs> One of the things I find most persuasive about all of these arguments is like, it's a Stanley Kubrick movie. Like, he made people do an ungodly number of takes, and sometimes it seems to have been for the acting, and sometimes I really don't think so. Like, I, I remain just amazed and aghast by the fact that they they did like 150 takes of the scene where dick and danny are talking about the shining because that is like it's a boring scene like it's it's not like i don't think you could say it's memorable or that anyone did a great job you have like a child and an old man who you're just like why are you doing this to the child and the old man so at that and so i also feel like at that point you're like 
you're like, Stanley, like, I hope you were doing something because if you weren't, then like, you're not a benevolent God. <laughs> like, you know, so like, I think applying this kind of theory to an auteur filmmaker, like it both makes more sense because this is like the end of this era of filmmaking was Heaven's Gate because that was a movie that rode on this idea that like we've done big gambles before with the Coppolas and the so-ons and it works out. So let's just put more money into this thing. And then it completely tanked and nobody liked it. And they like built and rebuilt a whole town for it and crazy stuff like that. And so the idea at this time that a director would have such control over a film and a set like does make sense to me. But also I feel like there's a lot of desire for Stanley to have like had a plan for everything. And like, I don't, you know, I don't think that's true. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think, Patrick? Well, as Sarah knows, I'm about to drop a confession on you, uh, Alex, a, a family secret of mine. My family has a long history of being extras in movies. Right. And you've recently published a piece about this. I did in Brightwall uh, Dark Room. Yes. Shouts to Chad and Fran, the wonderful people there. And so, like, ever since I was a kid, I've been on a lot. I feel like I'm starting Goodfellas. Ever since I was a kid, I always wanted to be a movie extra. (laughs) I don't know why. I've been an extra. I really feel like you should mention the first film that you were on. The first film was uh, Diabolique, remake of a French film starring Sharon Stone, one of, I think, the worst movies of the 90s. Um, (laughs) But you were great in it. It featured J.J. Abrams as an actor. Um, Ooh, how? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lots of, still need to write something about that whole uh, experience, but... I've been on enough movie sets to kind of know that, like, it's just chaos. Like, my mom is kind of the queen extra of the Pittsburgh movie scene, and my mom's my mom's attitude is like, well, if this is all pretend, I'm just going to pretend I need to tie my shoe right in front of the lead. Like, I'm just going to go stand there. And do, like, she just kind of, like, has no regard for, like, what's going on. So, on the one hand, I'm like, oh, intentionality of this stuff, this is just between lighting, extras, whatever, costumes, there's so much randomness. However... As I did write about in that piece, like, I did, I was an extra on a Fincher project who is, like, you know, sort of has inherited Mm -hmm. this. Who's, like, the Stanley of our day, right? Yeah, and, like, that experience definitely, the term after I'd been an extra for Fincher, I remember watching Room 237 and being like, you know what, like, I just watched, I was just in a scene with David Fincher directing where it was, like, 120 takes or whatever, and it was, like hyper specific this is like one of the first scenes in the whole show by the way if people want to see it mindhunter yeah but yeah so i don't know after that experience i i don't know i was kind of shook from the whole intentionality perspective i remember the first time i taught room 237 after being on set with fincher being like you know like i i don't know i i don't really i'm not i'm not as convinced anymore that movies are just this because in my head i'd sort of thought movies are this Mm. wonderful chaotic collision of different you know, well-meaning people. Sometimes they go poorly. Sometimes they go they go great. It's not like writing. I like it because it's not like writing. This sort of more solitary mm. effort, where at best you're working with some other editor who's really helping you. Like I love the I love being on a set and all the crazy collaborative energy of it. But so I wanted like to not believe that kind of intentionality, I guess. But mm. I don't know. I've 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 gone back and forth over the years. There are two things I remember from that Fincher story, which is one that he got like a million slightly different line reads, maybe on everything. But I remember the black hole line being like 
endless. <laughs> and then also, didn't he move a wall? Yes, he cut it. Yeah, he took out a wall to put a camera in the wall to sort of get a creepier sort of uh, look. And in the course of taking, I mean, in the moment, and I write about this in the piece, I was like, this is incredible. This is an artist. He's changing point of view in the moment. Like, what a commitment. But in the course of doing that, an extra fainted mm-hmm. because the room was so goddamn hot and, like, he was just taking Jesus. forever. And, like, yeah, it was really kind of like, oh, maybe that's not as cool to, like, be that relentlessly focused on your own point of view at the expense of literally hundreds of other people directly uh, around you. Mm. So I, I remember that being a kind of fraught experience for me yeah i mean speaking to sort of the intentionality like someone does speak to this i think it is it's the guy who lost his job i'm not entirely sure but the um he speaks to kind of like the alignment element you know that to me rang rang the most true where it's like this maybe wasn't intentional but like what kubrick made is open for all of this and like maybe kubrick himself makes things Mm. that are open for this sort of thing and like i buy that entirely because I, i was telling telling sarah earlier that I saw this like Kubrick exhibit at LACMA a number of years ago. And like he had this whole card catalog that was devoted just to Barry. I think it was devoted to Barry Lyndon or maybe a movie he didn't even make. Mm. And it was, and it was a full card. It was like a, like whatever, however many ports are on a card catalog, like that stands up on a desk. Yeah. And it was full of cards and each card had written out like a explanation of like who a person was going to be, what their background was, what a scene was like. Hmm. This is a person who was intentional. Like that's, there's no doubt that mm. there's a, this is a person who is intentional and, and especially like doing all this shit on film, like the whole thing is crazy, seems crazy to me in retrospect. So I think like a lot of it was intentional. I don't know that any of these reverse engineered explanations are what he intended. <laughs> or I guess the idea that like Stanley is going to put a message in a bottle and only I, his best fan, will be able to know exactly what he wanted us to know which i feel like is like is one of the ways i mean like i think like think whatever you want about the shining i don't care but like when people bring that mindset to QAnon stuff like what i find interesting about that is that like that's not literary interpretation i think that's what a lot of people think that people who do literature do all day they're like pink flowers mean they're in love and (laughs) whatever (laughs) but really like i think that the humanities do teach you ideally i hope they taught me that if i write a book then like i will have conscious ideas about what messages i want to put in it but also i will like unintentionally whether i want to or not which is why I think it's hilarious when fiction writers are like, my characters are autobiographical. And it's like, oh, I see. You drew from your vast knowledge of being other people. <laughs> like, you're always reading yourself when you write something. You're always expressing yourself or your concerns or your ideas to the world in ways that you're not conscious of and you can't control. And the blood is going to get out of the elevator. And, like, Stanley wasn't immune to that either. And so I feel like my understanding of art leaves room for Stanley to not be in charge of everything that he did. And also I feel like, I think they should be much cheaper, but like humanities education does hopefully teach you that. And I think that the QAnon discourse we're seeing is like 
seems to me much more like Bible quotation and like whatever you call it when you just like quote scripture to justify everything and are like, Timothy 4.12, this thing means I can do this to my wife and this equals this and this number means this will happen this year. And like, I don't know, there's just so many different ways to interpret a text. I feel like maybe we need better a better understanding of all the ways that we do that as people. I just don't want to seed obsession as being a bad thing or participation in a larger discourse as being right. a bad Like, we cannot seed that just because some bad things happen. Like, I, and obviously we need to grapple with the virality of this q and We need to, like, there, there's ways in which, like, simple discussions of speech and, like, conspiracy theories and stuff don't even really apply to, like, what's going on now where you, like, don't even have a proper language to, like differentiate this stuff but part of the reason like this podcast is great is i just think of all the people who've been on recently and like talia talking about lord of the rings zines and alex with moshing zines or nordic nordic mythology or like this stuff where it's just like like yes that stuff has been extrapolated into horrible directions but like do we just want to say oh yeah let's let's Mm. excise all of that from our lives from our youths from our like learning to participate in cultures like Mm -hmm. we need to figure out a way not to just seed that type of obsessive relentless curious energy to like it should we shouldn't be relabeling it as a bad thing yeah you know just just because we're having some horrible stuff yeah Candace and I were just talking about that and I was theorizing like I feel like we all have this energy probably some of us more than others You know, she's able to use it, like, in her life in ways that are fruitful for her and that, like, relate to what she cares about and, and, like, in ways where she has autonomy. And I feel as if the QAnon stuff is, like... Like, I wonder to what extent that has to do with, like, we all have this natural need to, like, seek out and recognize patterns and try and improve our lives by, like, noticing what's going on and predicting what will happen next and developing theories... And then it's like, I don't know, like maybe just like there's such insanity with needing to believe in the Republican Party because they're just going to abuse you over and over and then blame you for it or blame Mexicans or I don't know. And like if there's no connection between your actions and the outcome, like is this one of the ways that you express that? I don't know. I wonder if they're like historical. I don't know. Or maybe people are just like this and we need to just be more aware of this thing that we are. What are some wrapping thoughts on uh, on room 237? Well, I know that Patrick, who does always come pretty prepared, has a top 10 list of potential daddies. I love it. Yeah, I would say it's more dad-related content, um, <laughs> maybe than daddy. It's dad, daddy. Uh, like, my, my some of them, like number nine, I just wrote Neil Armstrong. Why? Dads love space. Not a very good one, but... Uh, <laughs> I like that. Lloyd the bartender, why is he a dad? Just always got a drink for you. Scatman drives a truck. The, the top five or six are maybe more worthy <laughs> of uh, discussion. He drives a truck. <laughs> Naked bathroom lady, uh, why is she a dad? few things are more horrible than the first time you see your dad naked so i feel like jack is really sort of seeing a parent (laughs) naked uh, for the first time in that and then he starts laughing at you hysterically and chases you out yeah i mean jack torrance and this has been written about i've seen this on twitter a bunch like he really is 
sort of the original quarantine dad or he is i mean he's living a, a type of dad existence here um many parents are sort of living though hopefully with very different results i want to save may's lady for sort of like the winner um and also the composer i think asher the director mm. he reminds me of my, not daddy but just a dad like he just kind of likes hanging out with company that you'd sort of prefer he moved on from and just sort of has a strange cast of characters um i mean he's just recently made the glitch in the matrix which is just about people who believe in simulation theory and i don't know i think of him like kind of liking being around this crazy cast of characters like my own dad just has these people like hey, Johnny Mac and Jimmy Marooch and Mr. Happy and the Big Baklava and these kind of people who like uh, he just kind of keeps around and like <laughs> big it's not. Yeah. Sarah, have you ever met the Big Bok? No, but I've heard of the Big Bok. <laughs> yeah. So Asher was sort of uh, a dad to me. But like as far as daddy, like. I think of like a like a daddy like really changing my homeostasis like they walk in the room and I'm like oh man like I'm like I'm like a flutter I'm like uh I'm like really like into this mm. I think we haven't talked much about the music in room 237 it is freaking incredible yeah the score of room 237 is so good by Jonathan Snipes and William Hudson and like the score just literally changes, like, my homeostasis. Like, it's just sort of... I've even been, like, when I've been screening it in class and I'm, like, grading on the side, I have once before, in very embarrassing fashion, there's, like, a really sort of propulsive, like, like I don't know, snare hit and then cymbal crash when it's, like, growing. It's, like, da 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 bang. And I'll occasionally be grading and just, like, do the cymbal crash as I'm sitting there. <laughs> Like, while I'm screening it, like, I just love the score so much. Uh, so the composer's a daddy. I mean, we talked about Stanley as this sort of, you know, he's this inscrutable series of influences and choices that people are spending their life unpacking. Mm. But May's Lady, you know, Julie, I, I just love Julie Kearns. Uh, I mean, she's a dad. She loves maps. She loves maps and analysis and directions. <laughs> like, she's she's a she's a dad. Uh, I also love her accent when she says Minotaur. Yeah. <laughs> I love the way when she says Dick Halloran. When she says Dick Halloran, it sounds like she's saying a French guy like Dick Halloran, like Dick Halloran or something. Like she like <laughs> like she just has an incredible voice to me. I always am excited when we pivot to her. Uh, and she loves maps. Like she's just a you know she's a very very dad like figure. Directions maps. She makes maps. Yeah, so that was kind of like my itemization of uh, of dad figures. Some more dad than daddy by a long shot, but um, yeah. Yeah, I love the music in this too, and I feel like I feel like I don't know when this happened, but like certainly sort of synthy synthwave whatever music is very cool again. But there was a time when. It was hard to find new examples of this sound, and I feel like this soundtrack was, like, at least for me, it was one of the first things I found of, like, oh, like, people made a new album that, like, gives me the tingles the way that, like, you know, the music of Miami Vice and co., gives me the tingles 2007 to 2012 was a big synth revival like of the of the mid 80s oh yeah then that would be at the end of this so i guess like finally coasted into living room theaters and i caught it yeah i'm glad it did i i love it i love like there's there's a couple like spotify just like 80s sci-fi synth playlists and i will 
spend mm. lots of time with this. <laughs> so I loved it. And yeah, that was my, my favorite part of the movie is when it ended, not because it was over, but because that, that, uh, that score swelled and you could actually hear it oh, in yeah. all of its, in all of its glory. And it's really great. I'm going to seek it out. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Oh, so good. And it's riffing on the DSE Ray, which, which, well, I, I just realized this, but <laughs> The Shining begins with a little DSE Ray riff. And then so this movie ends with like a whole song that's a DSE Ray riff. So it's forwards and backwards. Oh, well It's like done. using the input <laughs> of the interviewees. <laughs> All right. Patrick, thank you so much. Oh, thank you too. What a, what a joy. What a joy. Yeah. 